I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And when we think of news reporting, what may immediately come to mind is the highly produced, frequently editorialized content that we consume via our mainstream media. But the -the on-the-ground footage contained in those edited segments of speeches, rallies, protests, riots, and more is often captured, hours at a time, by independent videographers who see a fuller, more complicated picture than the one the general public is presented. Our guest this week goes in-depth on what he's witnessed and learned covering some of America's most tumultuous and historic events of the last several years. Ford Fisher is an independent news videographer, editor, filmmaker, and the editor-in-chief of News to Share, a platform for raw video journalism related to political activism. His work has been included in Emmy-winning films. He co-founded and designed News to Share as an engine for independent videographers and citizen journalists to contribute to the evolving news cycle. Ford, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sounds like it's going to be a fun discussion. So your career as a journalist dates all the way back to your days as a high school student when you filmed local politics in your hometown of Boxford, Massachusetts. But today, I would say you're probably most well known for your on-the-ground coverage of political extremism, either at rallies, protests, or riots across the United States, from the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, to clashes between the Proud Boys and Antifa in Portland, to President Trump's January 6th speech immediately before the storming of the US Capitol in Washington, DC. But before we dive into all of that, How did you first become interested in journalism and specifically the kind that often puts you in unpredictable and sometimes violent situations? For sure. So like you alluded to, I actually started in journalism videography in Boxford, Massachusetts, which was a really small town with only 8,000 people. But I got a job at the local television station there filming political meetings. So these were things like library board, board of selectmen, which is kind of like five people with the equivalent role to like what a mayor would do. And even on that really, really small scale, it was interesting that, and also a nonpartisan one, right? All of those sorts of offices were appointed or elected on a nonpartisan basis. Even on that really small scale, issues would become really contentious. And so that kind of coverage was important for people to be able to see their town meetings sort of beginning to end and actually live on air. But something that I found early that I think probably informed the way that I approached journalism later was that there was already also an access problem where, you know, I had a few times where going to film a relatively mundane kind of government meeting like the library committee or the committee on aging, right? Things that not many people would probably be watching anyway. They tried to actually exclude videography. They would try to find reasons, in some cases, literally just locking the building saying, okay, we have all our members here. Now we're going to lock it for security. They would say something like that. Even though there was a public right to film, the overuse of executive sessions where they would claim that they're going to talk about subjects that aren't subject to being filmed or being seen by the public. And so I think that that probably instilled in me some certain values that maybe evolved into the type of work that I do now, which is as much as I try not to have my work be about left or right or leaning in one direction or another, I do strongly believe in videography's power to hold state actors accountable, right? I mean, I think that from the police who are sort of the enforcement arm of the state, all the way up to the politicians, that videography sort of showing what they are up to is critical as a first step in our democracy, right? You can't talk about whether something is good or bad or how to reform something if you quite literally don't know what's happening. So on a small town scale, that's kind of how I began. I had actually been more interested in 
fiction film. I went to school for film and media arts, not journalism or documentary. But it was while I was at college that I sort of ended up co-founding this news company, News to Share, with another then student, Trey Inks, who is now an Israel-based correspondent for Fox, whereas I continued the business. And so during that time period, we filmed a lot of progressive activism or activism that would conventionally be thought of as left of center, but during the Obama years. And I think that was really interesting for us because we were covering events that were critical of the system, but like generally from its left during a left or not a leftist administration, but a left of center administration. And that kind of thing was vastly underreported, I think, by the mainstream media, right? Protesters saying that Obama was insufficiently progressive on immigration or that he had failed to stop torture at Guantanamo Bay. And then, of course, leading up to 2014 and 15, the Black Lives Matter movement's beginning was really a big focus for us as we were starting that business. I think that's a really key point you've just made, and it's going to tie into another part of our conversation in just a little bit, which is basically the distance between the kind of stuff that you've shot and covered and seen in person and then what I guess you could call the mainstream media decides to cover or not cover on a daily basis. And I think the undercovering of certain political activity and protests during the Obama administration is something that I think, as you just rightly said, the mainstream media really kind of failed on. And I want to get into that a little more with you in just a second. But I was struck by something you said regarding access at even the local level. Is that something that when you first encountered it in high school, local government locking out videographers from what I imagine aren't super dramatic, at least compared to some of the stuff you've seen recently, super dramatic events? What did you believe back then? Were there reasons for keeping out videographers from <laughs> local meetings? And do you see that as a problem endemic in the United States across many cities and towns? Or I just want to hear more about your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there might be a perception among politicians in some cases. And I realize that when we're talking about like a small town meeting, like we're not really talking about career politicians. These are people who have normal jobs and then who ended up getting elected or appointed to small committees, but they are still part of government. And I think that people in general, <laughs> but especially people with power, probably feel like their power is preserved by not necessarily having that accountability. And I can empathize almost with why someone would feel that way, that if they're having a meeting of 10 people, that they, can, they might be able to talk more freely or something and not have to be as careful with their words or what, you know, whatever if they are not also having the ability for anything that they say in the context of that meeting to be viewed by, like I said, their constituents, 8,000 people. So I, I think that that one camera in the room represented accountability to all of the people who might care about what they have to say, whether it be because they're slipping up. I'm not accusing them of corruption of some kind of way, but like if there was some kind of you know, corrupt dealing or logic that they're using that shouldn't be used. Oh, let's hire this person because they're my friend, right? Like as a government contractor, right? Like that kind of thing, I feel like would be very normal at a local level, but not something that you would want, you know, recorded. I also think that there's probably a technology gap where state apparatuses are not necessarily as acclimated to the fact that people are going to want to use technology to record these things. So I would use as an example that right after I had graduated college, I had a job at a nonprofit that was dealing in accountability for the IRS. And I specifically was doing videography. I wasn't doing any kind of you know activism related to tax policy. But one of the things that they had me doing that was very much up my alley was 
go film the supposedly public meetings at the IRS. At the IRS, in the IRS headquarters on Constitution Avenue in Washington, D.C., they have meetings on a fairly regular basis that are theoretically public, but they take place on the eighth floor of the IRS building. You have to go through security, state who you are and why you're there, and they're not particularly advertised, right? These meetings are not things that basically people would know that they can attend, even though any American is basically entitled to be at them. And there was one time that I actually went to one of these with a camera. I went through the entire process. And then once I actually got up there, like the security at the IRS approached me as the meeting was just beginning and as I was filming it and then started to make me leave. And I got into this confrontation, verbal confrontation, arguing with them and basically saying, it seems like you're going to force me out. I'm not going to resist. Like if you're saying you have to leave, I will leave. But who's taking responsibility for that, right? Who's kicking me out? The security guard was basically like, you have to go. And I said, okay, I would like your name and badge number since it's you in particular. And he's like, well, it's not me. Someone else is telling me to do it. And I was like, well, bring me that person, right? I, I want who is accountable to this decision right now. And as this conversation was going back and forth, a sort of PR person, a public representative person from the IRS came like running into the room and he was like, wait, 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 stop, let him stay. And he was very friendly. He actually gave me a business card and he said, just call me the next time you come because they're not used to this. What he actually described to me is that the people at the IRS, even though these were public meetings, they were just not actually acclimated to the idea of there being a camera in the room, even though the public has had a right to come and film it, you know, all along. So as a general matter of governance, I think it would probably be better if any kind of governing body, state, local, federal, was aware of the kind of accountability that they could be held to and accepted videography. But at this point, I think there might be some level of like growing pains where to committees um, and so forth that have never had that sort of thing, that it might be hard for them to get used to it and they might be you know, combative or resistant to that kind of accountability. Yes. It also reminds me of the, gosh, many videos I've seen, and this is a slightly different situation where police have often told either citizen journalists or just average non-journalist folks just walking around, which I guess would potentially make them citizen journalists, that they're not allowed to film in public. And I think that that is a problem, whether it's intentional on behalf of the police or politicians or just ignorance, which in my opinion is almost more troublesome, that they'd be ignorant of a law like that. Right. But the idea that either someone like yourself or someone just walking around on the street wouldn't be able to film a public servant while they were doing their duty feels very problematic. Right. And as I described, in my opinion, the police are the or not just my opinion, I think it's objectively true. The police are ultimately like the enforcement arm of the state, which is why I think that it's especially critically important to film them, which I think that there's been a connection that maybe some people make that says that like filming the police is like an anti-police act in some way. And I would argue that for some people it is, and that can perfectly legitimately be true. However, to the good cop, right? If a cop is actually doing sort of the right thing, if they're proud of the work they are doing, then they should actually value there being an objective recording of what it is they are doing. And so in spite of the fact that I tend not to say like what I personally believe about like political issues, like in the name of government accountability and press freedom and so forth, I do tend to advocate on those issues. And to that end, I support the idea of body camps, right? Because it is sort of like the equivalent of live streaming a demonstration where you know, as I'm sure that we can talk about, I try to live stream events in a very complete way so that you don't have missed context. 
it is true that filming state actors in a limited way, right? If you get a quick recording, you might miss what preceded it, or you might miss what happened after it. You might miss crucial context that would help you understand what you're seeing. And body cams, if used correctly, sort of solve that problem. So I think that generally, as it relates to the state, be it at committees or be it the enforcement arm through law enforcement, the more complete videography you have of what they are doing, sort of the better situation you end up in. You can't change anything for the best if you don't know what there is in the first place. Yes, I am in complete agreement with you. And I've spoken, I'm not on the podcast, but I've spoken with several family members who are either current or former police officers. And all of them are pro body camera because from the perspective of at least I would say, I think they would describe themselves as good cops. From their perspective, there are many instances in which someone they are trying to arrest might say, oh, well, they were, you know, this cop was doing X, Y, Z to me. And if they have the body camera footage, it can acquit them of those potential charges. So I personally don't understand. um, Well, I guess I do, but I don't think it's rational for a police officer to resist either body cams or being filmed because oftentimes there are bad actors on both sides. And oftentimes footage of what a police officer is doing can often be beneficial to the police officer. But I think it's, it's just good all around, especially when lethal force is a potential outcome when you have a police officer who's armed with a deadly weapon. For sure. An an example I would use, a really, really simple example, but this actually happened. A couple of months ago, I saw a tweet that a person was filming in their driver's seat of their car, and apparently like the passenger had been removed from the vehicle and was dealing with the police sort of separately. So this person who's filming in the front seat of his car then turned backwards as a police officer approached, and the police officer threw a small plastic bag into the backseat of the car. And the individual then posted this video, essentially implying that the police officer was planting something, which I admit that actually when I saw that video at first, I was like, "Uh oh, like good thing that guy was filming. He caught like, you know, a bad act on the police officer's part. Yeah, the police actually very it was within only a few hours. The police actually then published their own body camera footage. And what they showed was that the plastic bag had been taken out of the pocket of the passenger. And it did not have anything incriminating in it. It was literally like he had like a plastic baggie from lunch or something. (laughs) So they had been searching him and they had to take all of his sort of property, I guess, off of his body. But rather than, Uh, you know, impound the plastic bag, he just tossed it back into the car. And so from that one moment, it looked like a bad act. And it's not bad that that person filmed it. The person in the car actually would not have known why that was happening at the time. So they may have been trying to deceive social media if they understood why that had happened, or they might have genuinely thought that they were about to be a victim of some kind of planting. But one way or another, the complete body camera footage in this particular case actually vindicated the officer. And so I would argue that it benefits truth overall, right? If the officer is planting something, which has also been caught on body camera footage inadvertently, that sort of thing has happened, then it holds the bad guys accountable. But if someone is falsely accused of something, it holds them to account to what actually happened. Yeah, full agreement. It's an old saying, but it is true that sunshine is the best disinfectant. I want to kind of circle back to your career. To the average news consumer, and I would say myself included, I think what we see of your work is usually probably a kind of a heavily condensed and edited version of what you both film and experience because it is often licensed by mainstream media outlets like ABC, the BBC, NBC, and so on. So walk us through a typical, and I realize that that is a bit of a loaded (laughs) word in this particular context, but a typical day covering a live event from your prep to your wrap. What does that look like and what does that feel like? So January 6th is a daily basis. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, yeah, I think that my work has, there's almost a 
an inverse scale of like the more atypical a day is, the more people end up seeing it. So on the day to day, I actually am much more often covering nonviolent activism, people saying their piece, and maybe there's two sides who argue with each other, or maybe it's just one side that holds their event, and then everybody goes home just fine. And that's sort of the end of it. I tend to film basically activism in general, that's my focus, from left, right, and you know those who don't subscribe to either direction. And I try to do that fairly indiscriminately. So my coverage is not really based on whether I personally agree with who I am filming or not. And the idea of what I do is that I try to live stream events beginning to end so that, first of all, the audience can see them live, which is intrinsically kind of interesting, right? Seeing the news as it's happening, but also to create a beginning to end recording so that the context of every shot that myself or any of my clients use is then available. And so to put this sort of into practical terms, like as you're describing like a day in the life of, when I become aware of some kind of demonstration that's going to be taking place, I try to get there. Um, I, I am based in Washington, D.C., and so probably half or more of the stuff that I cover is there in D.C., um, but I also travel a lot. And essentially, whenever the thing starts up, I begin a live stream. And if all of my technology goes according to plan, which is a big if, right? Sometimes things go wrong. But what I try to do is start a live stream with usually a very basic description of kind of the who, what, and where. Protesters march against the Texas abortion ban law, encouraging the Supreme Court to overturn it, something like that, at the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., right? So I begin a live stream, and it should be going to Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter simultaneously. And assuming that there's not connection issues or other tech issues, I try to have that live stream run all the way until the event is over. And I do that by mounting my iPhone on top of my cinema camera. The live stream is basically seeing an angle that is almost identical because it's mounted right on top of the professional camera that I'm then shooting with. So throughout the event, what I try to do is if there are multiple sides, then trying to go back and forth and see both sides of what's going on. If it's one side, then trying to be just sort of as close to the focal point of the action, the speaker, the leader, whatever. But basically recording highlights of the event that is taking place. And so when the event ends, I can then end the live stream and immediately that's already available. So people can see a beginning to end recording of everything that happened. But then I quickly get to either home or hotel or a coffee shop or something where I then put the footage from my camera onto the computer and I try to edit it usually into an approximately 10 minute highlight reel. So that usually looks like an assortment of the speakers or scenes that kind of best exemplify what happened at the event. And sometimes when there are individual speeches, especially by notable people, you know, if a member of Congress speaks at a rally, I might end up with a 10 minute cut down, sort of summarizing the rally, but also then I'll make a separate video so that people can see in HD the representative's speech beginning to end. In short, I end up posting highlights on YouTube and Facebook. And then on Twitter, I usually make it more like a thread so you can see something that looks more like a timeline of the event. But importantly, the live stream stays up so that people can see the context of every shot. Criticisms of me uh, tend to be based in the idea that 
oh, you filmed those people and you shouldn't have filmed those people, right? If I film a right-wing group, left-wingers saying that you might have empowered them by spreading their message or vice versa, that you're filming the left, you're spreading their message. Why did you do that? But something that I have basically never been accused of is actually deceptively editing. And I think that's in part because people can actually essentially see the entire thing. So once I have posted the way that I have a cut down summary reel, if I took somebody's words out of context, right, if I either interviewed somebody or I filmed a speech and then had posted it in a way that they felt was void of context and distorted what they meant, they'd be able to refer right to my own video to say, look at the whole thing. That's not what I meant. So that kind of accusation I see very frequently toward mainstream media, but it's not something that I've really had to deal with. And I think that the mainstream media would probably be better off if that was the case. But in terms of the way that I do this as a business, the reason that I do all of these things ultimately in addition to just people support me on Patreon and I get some level of ad revenue from people watching the videos, is that then networks can license the footage. So if I film something that a network didn't, they can then reach out to me and say, hey, we missed you know, this or that. We'd love to buy a license to use your footage of the thing on our 5 p.m. news broadcast or in this documentary, whatever. And the value, I think, of that is that as opposed to most other you know, news networks and contributors and so forth, when my content then makes it onto air in a film or on a news broadcast, I can also refer the audience to, here's the full context of that, right? So I'm not accusing them of, you know, if CNN uses my work, I'm not saying that CNN is editing it deliberately or deceptively. But of course, if they're making a 43-minute documentary and I filmed a two-hour event and that you know event is only a tiny part of what they're you know covering, some people might be interested to see the whole context of how they use whatever they used. And so I think it creates a unique value because even for the mainstream media, there's some level of accountability that I can show, here's the whole thing that went with what they then presented in this documentary film. I think it holds the media accountable, but I think it also creates a greater just understanding among news viewers about what it is that they're watching. In one way, the live stream footage from your iPhone is a way for you to basically have receipts if someone ever thinks that you're uncharacteristically editing your 10-minute cutdowns of the footage. So you can say, you know, here's the entirety of my day. You can watch it now. And then also the entirety of the footage that you've shot on your more professional camera, you can use that to hold mainstream media accountable if they somehow license your footage and then use it in a way that you don't feel accurately represented what you shot. Yeah, you can also take sort of both steps, which is that if somebody, if they present a moment, even in from my HD camera, I can still say, here's the live stream. So you can watch the whole four hour thing that they use the 10 seconds of or whatever it is. Right. I would also add that part of the value of live stream is it's hard to, I can't record on my HD camera, like every single moment from something for both battery and data purposes, right? And this is true for pretty much any news agency other than if they're live streaming, it's really hard to record essentially beginning to end. I don't usually come back with one long shot. On my HD camera, I'm recording things when they seem like they matter. But sometimes you will end up capturing something in the live stream that you wouldn't have captured in HD when you're manually choosing when to record or not. So just a quick example I would use of that was last year, in Louisville, Kentucky, I was filming as the NFAC, the Not Effing Around Coalition, which is essentially a black nationalist militia group. They were getting ready to hold a march in Louisville. 
And so I began a live stream because I was there around, you know, essentially 500 black men preparing firearms. And this wasn't the focus of the story yet. The focus was that they were going to be holding a march. And then once they got to their destination, they were going to be giving speeches and then they were going to be returning. So it didn't make sense to me for me to be recording in HD every single second of them basically prepping guns in a park from a distance, right? I wasn't like in the middle of that as they're prepping. I'm waiting for them to march. As that was taking place, one of them actually had a negligent discharge. One of them basically fired a shotgun by accident and three people were injured. Thankfully, all three people were not critically injured. Uh, my understanding is that two were released from the hospital that day and one I think was released sort of shortly thereafter. None of them pressed charges against themselves, right? So nobody ended up being criminally charged in what had happened. But that incident became something that was, of course, used to sort of reflect on probably gun safety, you know, especially at events like this. And ultimately, it was only because I was live streaming that this moment was captured on video. To my understanding, the only videos that exist of that moment are my live stream. And there was one security camera that also sort of had that in frame. So that was sort of a soundless and distant look at it. But, you know, of course, right after the shot happened, I then began recording on my HD camera. So we have HD footage of how they reacted, how police responded and so forth. But that was a dangerous moment. It was important to have recorded. I could list any number of ways that a moment like that could be misconstrued if you didn't have camera proof showing what happened. For example, that it was an accident and not somebody intentionally hurting somebody else. Yeah, and that really speaks to kind of the future of, I guess you could say, life and live events in general, in that we can be being filmed at all times at any given time. And what that means, either for justice or how we are perceived, how we live our lives, uh, is so radically new. Because although, you know, news media is in the, in the course of human history, relatively new, but that idea that you could just be filming something constantly and live streaming it to the internet has such amazing ramifications for just kind of the future of news coverage and criminal justice. I would also add that by having something that's going out into the sky, so to speak, it prevents the possibility that the media is lost because of physical damage, confiscation, or theft of the camera, right? So, I mean, I have heard stories of people who filmed something disfavorable to the police and that they then confiscate it and delete the content or just take it. I personally know people, for example, who have been arrested while doing journalism, and then they claimed that the camera is evidence and took it with mixed results in terms of whether it comes back with the thing that they swore they recorded still on there or not. And live stream, uh, for the most part, removes that problem, that if you are recording, if you're live streaming something, even if a police officer was to say, you know, stop live streaming that, or a police officer or any other party who would be upset about accountability, even if they took a hammer and smashed your phone, the thing is still out there. The recording is still out there. And so that kind of accountability continues to exist, even if the person on the ground were to use essentially physical force to prevent the accountability. And circling back to something you said earlier about how you've occasionally been judged by people either on the right or the left for merely filming political activists and quote unquote airing their views. It makes me harken back to a conversation I had with Greg Lukianoff of FIRE. And we were talking about how kind of it's the exact opposite in the same way that you would want to know who is armed with a gun so that you can understand then who you need to watch because you understand they have a gun. I think it's better for everyone in society to understand who believes what. Because if their views are recorded and aired, then you can understand, okay, that person believes that thing. That's probably someone we should keep an eye on because their views are abhorrent. 
I am concerned that, and I understand that this has been a problem throughout American history, but it seems slightly more common now that merely quote unquote platforming someone's views, even as, as a journalist like yourself, is inherently problematic because I think it runs counter to the very idea that knowing what a person believes is the best way to identify and then fight back against it politically, verbally, et cetera. For sure. And so I actually, I have a distinction that I make on this exact subject because it may sound surprising coming from me as someone who films people conventionally believed to be extremists and, you know, abhorrent and so forth. And I try not to apply that label to people myself, right? Because I, you know, I want it to be objective. I don't want my... I will, but I understand if you don't. <laughs> right. But so a distinction that I would make, it might surprise people to hear that I actually also generally oppose the idea of basically platforming extremists just for platforming their, you know, sake, right? So the distinction, though, that I make is that platforming is what happens when CNN invites David Duke to speak on CNN, Yes, right? Where you are saying, okay, here is a microphone, come sit in my studio and answer questions and talk about something. And there may be a journalistic value to doing that, but in my mind, that is what platforming is. And platforming, by the way, is what you are doing right now. You invited me onto your podcast. Yes. And the conversation that we are having, the words that I am saying, are not words that I would be saying unless I was talking to you for this podcast. Exactly. So that is providing a platform. The act of journalism, as it relates to things that would be happening, whether you are recording them or not, in my opinion, and I, I realize that reasonable people can disagree on this, in my opinion, that actually is not platforming. So when I go to a rally that has point of views being expressed, I don't see myself recording those things as platforming because they'd be saying them either way. Like their platform essentially is the public square. And there are actually some gray area type situations, I think, on this, such as I would give as an, an example. In 2018, there was a neo-Nazi. There was a person who he's Hispanic, but he was throwing sig hail. He was putting selfies online of himself throwing sig hails. This was actually a former Proud Boy who had been, depending on who you ask, either he left or he got kicked out of the Proud Boys. And this individual had been holding sort of hardcore MAGA events but had sort of escalated up to that he was doing essentially pro-Hitler things. And so he held was about to hold this event that he was calling the Fash Bash. This was literally going to be a birthday party for Hitler. When he announced this thing, he got kicked off of basically all of the social media platforms. But he basically asked me, do you want to come and film this event? And I said no. And the reason I said no wasn't just because it's like sort of an abhorrent, like it's a ridiculous sort of event going on. If he said that he was hosting this thing in Washington, D.C., outside the White House, I would definitely want to record how does the community respond to something like that? Are people going to counter protest him? Right. But he was holding this in like a private venue. Right. This was him in, you know, in a private space, inviting people who he could control who's showing up and who's not. And in my opinion, in that particular context, if I recorded that event and then sort of published it to the world, it probably would kind of be like platforming, right? He'd be doing it whether I was there or not. He was looking to you for PR. Right. It would be inviting him to sort of present what he's doing in, in a way that is pretty much in a controlled environment on his part. And so that felt like it would basically be platforming. So for me, the line is that I think that if the event is a public event, that it's happening in public space, that there is a public service to filming it. And there are some occasions in which it makes sense to also film something that is happening 
in private, right? So, you know, a conference, for example, right? I have to get a press credential to go and film a conference, which is in a private space. And so I realize that there's probably, you know, some give and take, right? I think that there is a little bit of case by case basis on this. But for me, that line is fairly clear. And so there are some people who would disagree with me and say that, you know, well, but you're putting them on your YouTube channel by recording them. And that is a sort of a platform. I personally don't agree, but I understand where they're coming from on that. That example you used about the fascist birthday party is a really excellent line to draw. And I also think that regarding platforming and the distinction between you covering someone in public versus someone inviting, say, David Duke onto CNN, I think that the line that you're speaking of is really like, is the journalist instigating the incident and therefore creating it? The only reason he is talking is because he was invited to talk. And so the journalist instigated the incident itself, as opposed to someone just filming David Duke walking down the street saying whatever he was going to say, whether or not a camera was there. Right. And so it's a distinction that's actually a little bit hard to articulate on Twitter, because I think it's to I hate to use an overloaded, overused term, but it's a nuanced distinction that probably doesn't fit in <laughs> 280 characters. But I, I also feel like and my audience is certainly welcome to tell me if they don't agree, but I, I kind of feel like by publishing using a very consistent format over a long period of time, it seems to me that the purpose of my work is fairly obvious. And the people who then are critical of it for some reason or another are often people who probably aren't as familiar with it, right? Like if people say Ford is only filming the left or Ford is only filming the right, those points of view might be dissuaded if somebody is watching it over a longer period of time. But also when something goes viral, it introduces a lot of people who are seeing your work for the first time or at least hadn't sort of realized that they'd seen your work before. To dig a little deeper in terms of the distance or correlation between the footage that you shoot that is licensed by mainstream media outlets and then how they use it. I mean, you, in effect, because you're there filming it, you get to see how the sausage is made, so to speak. So then when a, a news corporation then licenses your footage and uses it in a news story, how is the reality that you experience on the ground shooting that footage in long form different from what we as consumers of the media later see? Do you find that for the majority of the time that your footage is represented responsibly and in the context in which it was filmed? Or have there been instances in which footage you filmed has been used and skewed in such a way that there is distance between what you filmed and how it was presented by a mainstream outlet? For the most part, I think that my experience has fairly consistently been that when I ultimately am the one licensing to somebody, I have found that I think that that has an effect of making it not be taken out of context, in part because there's probably an awareness on the media's part of the type of media that I do, right? Like when you're licensing from somebody from 30 seconds to 45 seconds into your 10 minute YouTube video, like there's an awareness that you're still kind of accountable to that YouTube video that still exists. Like it would be pretty easy for somebody to find the context if it was used wrong. I think that what I've found if I had to sort of air a grievance about it would be that in some cases, I feel like it can be very limited where for me, I go into the situation and I hear the arguments to their completion. I hear everything sort of beginning to end. And I find that the 24-hour news cycle has created this kind of very fast-paced style of news that even when it's not being deceiving in any way, it still isn't kind of as detailed. So to use kind of the example of the NFAC thing, the gunshot that happened on the live stream, ABC Nightly News actually used it that night. They licensed that shot from me. And I remember that I didn't find anything about their reporting that night to be 
incorrect. They sort of headlined, there was a shot fired today as militias were at this situation. You know, there were right and left wing militias there. Like they summarized it in a very fast way, but the story was overall about two and a half minutes long. You know, and I had been out there from early morning when I was filming right wing groups to then filming the black nationalist militia, right? Like I had filmed an extremely detailed, right? If you looked at my Twitter that day, you would have hours and hours and hours of content describing what happened. And it was summarized into, I would say, a relatively fair two and a half minute description. And so I think that sometimes the nuances of like what the groups are about can be lost, right? If somebody was watching that on ABC Nightly News, I don't think they would necessarily be aware of like, what does the NFAC actually believe, right? What were the groups on the ground doing? What did they think of Trump, who at the time, like practically every issue was compared to like, who likes Trump and who doesn't like Trump was like the standard bearer of like, which side is which. So sometimes I find that there can be like a, a reduction into like two sidesism. I think there can be a a uh, really easy narrative sometimes in mainstream media of like, this is the left side and this is the right side. And things can be a lot more complicated than that, as would be in the case of a black nationalist militia, right? Like they don't neatly fit into left or right. They're armed black men who want an ethno state, right? Like they have elements that could perhaps be associated with left wing criticisms of policing, but they also have elements that uh, correlate with the extreme far right. It's complicated. And I think that that kind of thing often doesn't fit very well into cable news. Yes, I think that's a very astute point that takes us nicely into the next section of our conversation, which is the new blood of independent journalism, which I would say you're in that kind of sphere versus the old guard of traditional media and news coverage. What do you see personally as the future relationship between those two entities, the new media, I guess you could say, and old media, such as newspapers and television, et cetera? Because on one hand, the old guard did serve in some respects as a kind of important gatekeeper function in that there was editorial processes and sources had to be checked. There were editorial processes and things had to be fact-checked before they were published versus today where anyone can live stream anything, anyone can publish immediately to YouTube. So it's unfiltered, but it's also unfettered, right? So sources might not be checked and someone can say just whatever they want. This doesn't apply to you since you're just filming footage raw. But how do you view old media versus the new media? And is there a way for them to coexist without a kind of increasing tension? For sure. And I think, by the way, you could probably have a two hour podcast just about this exact question, but I'll try to do my best to, I guess, frame the evolution. You know, when I think that most people think of like mainstream media, they're largely thinking about basically cable news companies and their online offshoots. So CNN on television and then CNN.com and then CNN as an iPhone app and so forth, like all the equivalent things, Fox, Fox Nation on the computer, a Fox app, I assume there is one, all of that kind of stuff. Those networks historically have actually largely relied on local networks, both local TV networks, as well as newspapers and things to do kind of the original reporting. And so if you're really watching critically, like if you spend an hour watching CNN or Fox, you'll find that like for the most part, you're seeing a lot of anchors deliver stories or have packages thrown to them from sort of other places. But the original reporting that went into the information that they're giving you, either they're just straight up spitting out information from the government, right? According to a press release by the government today, you know, the press secretary, you know, said this, you know, and we have that video of like, essentially the White House told us that X, Y, or Z. But like the original reporting largely comes from more local outlets that then do the individual reporting. So those used to be more like legacy outlets. And that kind of 
stuff, local newspapers have been having a lot of financial issues of late, right? So there's been a lot of consolidation where they end up being bought by larger corporations. And in some cases, newspapers are just outright dying. So I think that local media always was sort of the source of this kind of on the ground coverage. And independent media is sort of a natural result of technology. And I don't think it's that, okay, independent media is killing local media. But it just sort of happens that the direction of capitalism right now has made it so that there's these big corporations that own a lot of the mainstream media and the smaller ones are kind of dying. But at the same time, the cost of having relatively high-end equipment, right, it's fairly easy to do real journalism on an iPhone, has meant that there's now more independent journalists who are finding themselves quite unaffiliated with those sorts of corporations. Part of the problem, as you point out, is that this new wave of independent journalists has a lot of good ones. There are many people other than myself who I would point to as fairly objective videographers. There's a lot more podcasters and things who are performing probably a valuable kind of editorial service, right? Giving commentary that more thoroughly like explores issues than the mainstream media is willing to and much more depth. But I think that there's a little bit of disconnect where the mainstream media is sometimes inherently skeptical of relying on those sources which are not connected to legacy corporations, right? I have found, without naming names, that certain cable outlets almost seem like they resent having to license from someone like me. You know, even though I've established News to Share as a corporation, it's a corporation owned by one guy, right, <laughs> who co-founded it in college five years ago, right? I don't have the name Fox or CNN or Associated Press or Reuters. And there's a strong preference on a lot of these outlets to really rely on AFP, Reuters, Getty, whatever. And so there's a challenge. There's kind of a gap where independent media has to work really hard to prove its legitimacy. And there's also a problem financially where there can sometimes be a race to the bottom on independent journalists just starting out go to things, and they don't know what they're worth. It used to be that mainstream media would have to hire freelancers to go to these things or license them from those local outlets or wire services and what have you. And if there's someone with an iPhone whose footage is, you know, 80% as good as, you know, what a freelance camera person would get, and that person's willing to give a license for free just to see their name on the news, which is basically how I started out, right? I used to do, give free permission in 2014, 2015, just to see my stuff on Fox or CNN with my name on it. There's people who do that today, and then it makes it a lot harder for the independent media to kind of be a part of the mainstream media's economy. So... Personally, I don't see independent media and mainstream media as having to be at odds with each other. I don't see it as sort of a war for attention. I think that true independent media can hold mainstream media accountable and force them to be better. And I think that mainstream media also probably has, to some extent, a gatekeeping role where it probably can point out with having a lot more fact checkers and so forth when independent media is basically spewing bullshit, right? I think a problem that probably drags down all sides is when there is independent media who makes things up. No bones about it. There are some independent journalists who editorialize to the point of basically lying or just outright sort of post fake news. You know, I would point to like Infowars, for example, which isn't particularly independent. I mean, they're actually a fairly large corporation. But talking about space goblins and lizard politicians and stuff, right, like they are probably bring down the name of independent journalism. Yes. And that leads perfectly, actually, into my next question, which is 20 years ago, I'm kind of aging myself here. I think a lot of us sort of naively believed that the internet would enable us to become ever more informed, right? Once all of our combined human knowledge was at our fingertips. But 
I feel like in many ways we've gone down a much darker path. While the democratization of media has been beneficial in many ways, I think especially in allowing independent journalists and marginalized voices to be heard where they previously weren't, it has also allowed, kind of as you just said just now, uh, conspiracy theories to metastasize and spread. It's provided forums for extremists to find and connect with one another. And for misinformation that recently endangers public health, it allows all that to compete directly with licensed medical professionals. I've spoken about this issue with previous guests like communication specialist Sarah Mojarad from USC and Braver Angels Director of Storytelling Monica Guzman. But I'd love for to hear about how you've grappled with this as a journalist and if there are any potential solutions that may be able to stop what I feel is like basically a, a rolling crisis of misinformation on the internet. I have, I think, very mixed feelings about a lot of this because I generally believe that censorship, especially censorship that has any kind of relationship to the state, tends to do democracy a disservice, kind of like we talked about at the beginning. And so I'm skeptical of you know people's positions who say that, you know, basically just eliminate the wrong stuff. Because I think that generally when you endow anybody with that authority, when you say that Twitter gets to say what is true and what is not true, or you say that the state gets to choose what is true or not true, I think you end up in a very like dangerous space, right? There's a lot of things that the state basically lies about, right? I would just give as a very simple example, the government claimed that their final airstrike in Afghanistan killed 10 people and prevented a ISIS-K attack on a target in Kabul. And it was a New York Times investigation. Granted, this wasn't Joe Schmo, independent journalist, but it was a New York Times investigation that proved that the government was wrong, that they bombed a car that had people delivering water. It was basically a humanitarian aid worker and that out of 10 people who died, seven were children and all 10 were innocent, right? So I wouldn't want the state to have the ability to say, you're fake news if somebody posts something critical or accusatory toward them, right or wrong because I don't fundamentally trust the government to tell the truth in that situation, nor do I trust a large corporation such as Twitter or Facebook or whomever who might have state influence onto that same decision-making. On the other hand, of course, you have the problem that you just described, which is that people are able to then post something like, you know, don't get a vaccine because it has a microchip in it or something, right? And so it's essentially made up bullshit. So I struggle with this because my instinct basically tells me that good journalism should beat out bad journalism. And I do think that basically that's true, but it can also be true that the most ridiculous voices can sometimes be the ones that get most listened to, and it can certainly turn people's brains into rot. I probably come down on the side of like, I'm not the perfect person to decide like what all of these policies should look like. But I actually do think that the idea of fact checks connected to questionable posts seems to me to be the strongest middle ground on it, where I don't want to remove something because I have a hard time trusting the state or a corporation to decide what's right or wrong or what deserves to be seen or not seen. But I don't fundamentally really have a problem with a fact check that then links to some kind of credible evidence that the original thing is incorrect. And part of the reason that I'm okay with that is because I also believe that those fact checks can be held accountable. Sometimes they get it wrong. The fact checkers for these companies have sometimes posted stuff that then turns out to be just totally incorrect or inconsistent. So I think that people being able to sort of fact check the fact checkers is also valuable. And by being able to see the original post 
the criticism that was then appended onto it, and then criticism of that criticism, I think you end up with a little bit more of a democratized system. So, you know, if I was the ruler of the internet, I'm not sure exactly how I would set it up, but I think that that's the closest thing for me to what I consider to be fair. One of the things that we've spoken about is government accountability over the last year, and especially during the protests and marches and sometimes even riots that happened during the summer of 2020, one of the stories that kept cropping up was the mistreatment of journalists and videographers, sometimes by people who were supposedly part of the protests or riots, but oftentimes bad actors, and more importantly, officers of the state, police officers. So what has been your experience covering events over the last several years as it relates to your own personal safety and the safety of your fellow journalists? And have you seen any uptick in violence or general danger posed to journalists over the last year compared to previous years? I can certainly answer the last part first, which is that, yes, I think that 2020 was drastically more contentious, where I suffered by far the most injuries at the hands of any of these parties. So on May 30th, which was the second day that the riots following the death of George Floyd happened in D.C., I was shot twice with like sting ball rounds by the police. And on May 31st, the third day of those riots in D.C., I took a rubber bullet to my forehead which had I not been wearing goggles and had it been, you know, slightly differently placed, it could have easily taken out an eye, right? It hit the goggles such that the goggles were pushed down, which caused a cut on my nose. And then the round went into my forehead, kind of leaving this like half golf ball size wound at the top of it. I'm not saying that to sort of complain about it, but to point out that, you know, it is dangerous, right? There were people in Minneapolis who did lose eyesight in one eye from situations like that. In the case of all three of those shots, there's one of only two possible explanations, right? The police intentionally targeted media, which is bad for obvious reasons, or their fire was so indiscriminate or so poorly placed that it inadvertently hit a journalist, right? That a journalist wasn't the target and you accidentally got a headshot, <laughs> right, on the wrong person. So neither of those things is good, especially given that a primary rule of handling any weapon is that you know your target and what's behind it. So they either failed that safety rule or they did know their target and they targeted press. That happened, I think, much more severely in 2020 than I had dealt with before. And the same is true of rhetoric against media that then led to physical confrontations. So, you know, I had a situation in Portland in August of 2020, in which I was there early to an event where at a public park, there was going to be basically a Proud Boys led rally. And it really brought together a coalition of the American sort of far right at the time. So it had the leaders of the Proud Boys, and it also had several sort of militias in attendance. And a militia group that was styling itself as security for the event, one of their people, after having, by the way, several ostensibly actually leftist journalists had basically been beaten up earlier in the day and thrown out of this event. And one of these militia people approached me along with several other guys that he had sort of with him, backing him up. This is an armed person, came up to me and he said, you need to leave. And I was like, why? And I questioned back and forth and I did record this interaction. And he said, we obtained intelligence that you are Antifa. And this was a laughable accusation, <laughs> right? Never mind that I was wearing a bulletproof vest that said press on it, a press credential, a helmet that said TV, and that I was carrying a total of three cameras if you count an iPhone. So visible cameras, the word press and TV all over my body and a physical credential. And that if you looked me up, you would clearly know who I am and that I am media and not so-called Antifa. 
in spite of that, this went back and forth. And I ultimately basically said, you know, I've covered many times Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, and this is a Proud Boys event. If Enrique Tario agrees that I'm Antifa and not the media, then I'll leave. I said this because I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And we went over to him and he actually joked. I said, this guy thinks I'm Antifa. And he goes, that's probably because you are. Just kidding. And then he said, you know, basically stop giving him grief. I ended up being able to cover the event that day. But the accusation on the right basically came from that the media is somehow secret leftists who are working to subvert them. And while it is certainly true that there's liberal media who attends those events or even leftist media who attends those events that are against them, when you're in a public space, people are entitled to go there and film you. They might not be entitled to go there and attack you or antagonize or whatever. But if someone is there recording for whatever purpose, they basically have a right in our democracy to do that. And so I happen to argue, no, I'm not Antifa. But even if I was Antifa journalist, right, whatever that is, right, if I was that thing, that person would still actually have the right to be there and record as well. The proliferation of, not that I think that this is necessarily a problem, but it leads to a problem. The proliferation of sort of movement journalists on these different directions where you have guys who frame themselves as press And then there are speakers at the right wing event, right? People who literally are just proud boys styling themselves as journalists or right, you know, whatever, (laughs) essentially participants in the event who then have a camera. Of course, that's their right to do it. And I don't have any problem with someone saying that they're conservative independent journalists. That's totally fine. But them doing that has kind of created this effect where some of these movements then feel that the only media who's legitimate to them is the media that's already like on their side is the media that will proclaim their allegiance to them. And the goal of media, in my opinion, the goal of journalism, in my opinion, of course, should not be to proclaim alliance with the person who you are covering, right? To me, that would be an obviously like unethical transaction. But for some people in these extreme movements, the view is that that's what you have to do. And I've also witnessed the same thing kind of happen on the left. And when I say the left here, I'm not I'm really not talking about the liberal left or even democratic socialists. I'm kind of talking about like the Portland anti-fascist movement. In the case of like the Portland anti-fascist movement, at one point there was a time period where they were actually very comfortable with the media in general you know, filming what they were doing, and they were operational security focused, they would use umbrellas to block cameras from seeing what they didn't want them to see, they would wear a black block, right? And I have no problem with that, right? I certainly want them to be, you know, if you don't want people to see something, use your own tools to to sort of cover the thing that's happening. And as long as you're not assaulting or confronting the press, like that's totally your right to do that, you know, wear that mask, I will never find out who you are. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. They kind of evolved from 2020 into 2021, where Then it became that, you know, right-wing media was sort of persona non grata, right? The probably a first step in this would be the beating of Andy No in July 2019, right? He's someone who, for the people on the left, it was a lot easier for them to justify sort of attacking him or people like him, whereas it would have been a lot harder for them to justify an attack like that on, you know, a CNN reporter or something. But then it became that, you know, they basically wanted only those journalists who were specifically aligned with them or their rules. So they actually ended up having people who they referred to as like press block, who would take advantage of a ruling that basically said that the police weren't allowed to clear journalists or assault journalists. And so a lot of the anti-fascists framed themselves as independent press, which again, nothing wrong with that. If an anti-fascist wants to pick up a camera and a gimbal and say, you know, I'm the media, that's totally fine. But then what continued to happen was that then they were saying that only those people, basically people who are in our movement, are entitled to film us. And my understanding over the earlier end of this year 
is that then those people kind of got phased out where it was all media jeopardizes us. And so no media is allowed at anything that we cover that we do in these public spaces. And although I don't want to go into sort of enormous detail on this, the last time I was in Portland in 2021, they basically physically assaulted a journalist who I'm quite friendly with who lives in Portland and who certainly would not be considered on the right whatsoever. You know, and we're mad that basically any journalists were covering the thing that was happening at all. And so this has been sort of a pattern that has, with some some nuance and some differences, it's kind of plagued both the far left and the far right, where there's a viewpoint that basically any journalist who is not like sort of explicitly on their side is persona non grata and is sort of fair game to be attacked as if they are sort of an extension of their enemies. Yes. And this idea that neutrality, right, is seen as problematic or even offensive is something that seems to be spreading, not just among activists on both the left and the right, but within corporatized social media. I mean, you've repeatedly had your raw footage censored or demonetized by social media companies over the last several years. Your Facebook account has in the past been suspended. You've also at times been shadow banned by Twitter, which for anyone listening, that limits the ability for other users to even find your account. In 2021, raw footage that you shot of President Trump's January 6th rally, which was licensed and used in a BBC documentary, which is, a, I would say, a pretty legitimate organization, was removed from YouTube for, quote, spreading misinformation, quote, because it did not provide counter viewpoints or context. One more example, previously in 2019, your news to share channel was demonetized for spreading, quote, Holocaust denialism, quote, because it featured raw footage of a protest against a Holocaust denier. Now, it seems like this censorship, uh, not even it seems, this censorship has a direct impact on your income as a journalist and your ability to pay reporters who provide additional footage to news to share. What does this mean for the future of your industry, both this idea that neutrality in and of itself is problematic or even offensive? And what does it mean for journalism in general? Because if footage of reality without an accompanying moral judgment is considered inappropriate and even bannable, where does this leave journalists like yourself and organizations like News to Share? I think I first want to start with sort of a definition. I totally understand how you're using the term here, but I actually don't like the term neutrality because in my opinion, neutrality is sort of a statement or implication of like the equivalence of two or more positions, right? So in my mind, neutrality is what happens when CNN puts on a you know Republican consultant and a democratic strategist to argue about something. And they essentially claim to you that the resulting panel is quote unquote truth, right? Because you saw both sides of it. And then CNN essentially positing that they are not telling you which of those two sides is the correct one, that therefore they have sort of created you know, neutrality or they've created truth. In my mind, I don't actually take that approach, right? So I don't make any statement that any position is equivalent to any other position that I am covering. So I see neutrality as different than objectivity, which I consider my goal to be. So objectivity is not making a statement of this thing is good or bad. It is a statement of this is what happened. This is what is happening. And it is void of sort of value judgments that they are right or wrong, or their ideas are right or wrong, or this side is the good side and this side is the bad side. There's a cartoon that I've sometimes seen that I think actually very well encompasses this problem, 
it's an image of on one side, the Ku Klux Klan saying, you know, basically kill people of color and so forth. And on the other side, it's racial justice activists saying like civil rights now. And of course, everybody knows that, you know, one of those two sides is correct. And one of them is not right. Civil rights, good Ku Klux Klan, bad. And the joke is that then in this thing, they say, like, here's the person who's being neutral. And it's a guy in the middle saying compromise, right? And so, of course, it is sort of ridiculous to suggest a compromise between the ideology of the Ku Klux Klan and civil rights. You wouldn't want half civil rights and half KKK ideology guiding your political compass. I kind of agree with the criticism of that cartoon, but I would say that that doesn't then mean that you shouldn't record what is happening on both of those to then to then actually physically record civil justice activists and show what they are saying and then to go and record the KKK activists in the case of this cartoon and show what they are saying those two things don't i think result in a neutral act they result in an objective act and then essentially anybody who watches it should see that the Ku Klux Klan are clowns and the civil rights activists in the context of this cartoon are saying the correct thing, that their argument should be essentially persuasive. In real life, transitioning into real life, as you pointed out, in 2019, I sort of started encountering the first enforcement actions against my work. And that happened following a situation that was fairly unrelated to me which was that one YouTuber, Carlos Maza, had basically accused another YouTuber, Steven Crowder, of using anti-gay and anti-Hispanic sort of discriminatory language and jokes about him. And YouTube, in order to sort of show that they were doing something, generally broadened their policies to demonetize certain types of content and ban certain types of content from the platform altogether, rather than just targeting the specific thing that they had been criticized about. In their following response, they made some broadened definitions of hate speech, and they also banned Holocaust denial on the platform. And obviously, the Holocaust happened. My content has in no way disputed that. But they actually took down a video of mine in which I was filming both pro-Israel and pro-Palestine protesters outside of APAC. And there was an individual who showed up who basically was denying that the Holocaust had happened. So this was someone who was anti-Israel, but anti-Semitic, not actually with the pro-Palestine people, just outright an anti-Semite. And what was really fascinating to me is that both an anti-fascist who had been basically on the pro-Palestine side and pro-Israel people sort of joined forces in this situation to argue with the Holocaust denier. And they were basically agreeing on from both of their two sides that no, this guy is wrong. Neither of us agree with any element of what the Holocaust denier is saying. And I thought that was interesting. You have two sides that are at, at odds with each other. And then when somebody who came who is spewing nonsense, to put it bluntly, that they shut him down together. And YouTube misperceived that as Holocaust denial. And it took that video down as well as demonetizing my channel at the time which it took seven months before I was able to get re-monetized, essentially by complaining very consistently to YouTube about the absurdity of that enforcement action. So I think kind of the problem is that when they set these policies that probably are well-intended, right? I totally understand the intention behind rules about hate speech and Holocaust denial and so forth. But when they're leaving these two systems that are largely automated, they're not going to understand the context of what's going on, right? So my video 
of people shutting down somebody who says the Holocaust didn't happen. If you let a computer sort of go through that and turn it into a transcript and then decide whether a rule was violated, right? It's not going to know the difference between I'm the one who owns the channel and I'm behind the camera saying almost nothing. Whereas these people arguing are on camera, it's detecting certain keywords and then choosing an enforcement action based on that. And so I think that part of the problem has been that a lot of these actions are based on the computer recommends something to a human and the human says, okay, or just the computer does it outright. Similarly, in 2021, in September, when I was covering a confrontation between several different militia factions, a far right group, local social justice activists who were armed with guns, and then the NFAC, which also came out of state, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which is a black nationalist militia. All of these different militia groups with different ideologies, many of them at odds with each other, were converging in Louisville, Kentucky on September 5th. And they were quite at odds with each other. And so there were guns drawn, people pointed firearms at each other. Thankfully, nobody got hurt on that day. But it was something that for me was very important to cover beginning to end. And while I was live streaming, Facebook actually deleted my entire profile. The live stream stopped in action as Facebook removed my entire account. Thankfully, because I had a very large Twitter following, I was able to make sort of a huge stink about this. And it only took, in my case, it was a day later that a human actually, this is, I think, unheard of practically, a human actually reached out to me from Facebook to apologize. They restored the account and they said that what had happened was that Facebook's automated systems basically made a mistake. And what I believe happened is that based on a lot of keywords, me talking about militias and posting pictures and videos of people essentially pointing guns at each other, and that I was physically in Louisville, Kentucky, surrounded by people who are parts of militias, I think that Facebook probably thought I was violative of their policy that basically says you can't be a militia on Facebook. And so it seems to me that automated systems have a really hard time comprehending the difference between journalism about a subject and the subjects of that journalism. That, you know, automated systems, that when you ask a robot, it's not going to know the difference between journalism that is trying to record you know, hate speech and show it as opposed to videos that are themselves hate speech, right? That like images of a militia doing something are different than images posted by the militia or, you know, the person being in one. So generally, I think that a huge problem with that is that there's not really due process online that people are that they just start from a place of the computer said that it's bad and then it goes down, but also that it's really hard to appeal that sort of thing. In my case with YouTube, when I was a much smaller source online, it took seven months before they basically said, oops, sorry, but my YouTube income was gone for seven months, right? There's a lot of people who essentially wouldn't be able to afford to continue creating content in that time if that had happened to them. The second time I got demonetized, which you mentioned on YouTube, was when on January 6th, I had filmed Trump's speech beginning to end. This is the 70-minute speech that caused him to be impeached for incitement of insurrection. And then, of course, I also filmed the violence that happened at the Capitol immediately thereafter. Ironically, my video of all of that violence of the insurrection itself did stay on YouTube, although it was marked 18 plus. But the speech, my video that showed beginning to end, here's Trump's 70 minute speech. And by the way, the crowd's reaction to it. Right. I thought that was crucially important to history to be able to see beginning to end this remarkably historical moment. This is Trump at the moment that he is inciting and the reaction of the people in real time 
who he is allegedly inciting, right? So we're seeing both sides of the equation that led to, you know, only the fourth impeachment of an American president in history. And YouTube took it down because they viewed it as election disinformation. And their reasoning is that it showed Trump say that the election system was broken, right? That that's what he said in the speech. He's accused of inciting a crowd based on saying these things that he's accused of lying about. Me showing exactly what he said and the reaction of the people who said it, I thought was a really valuable historical recording. And indeed, my footage from that day was used in the House manager's opening statement in the impeachment itself. So I think it's fairly indisputable that it was historical. As you noted, also, that same exact footage was used on BBC. YouTube seems not to understand the difference between video of the president saying something and video that advocates the same position as that president. And ultimately, what they then told me, because I did get into a back and forth about this, they demonetized my entire channel at the time. And after Fox News wrote an article about me getting demonetized, they restored it. Um, so, you know, I think that there's certainly a prominence gap where just the fact that people know me made it easier to solve it. But if I was an independent journalist with a thousand followers, I might still be demonetized. In any event, uh, they basically told me that they created a new standard. So before, there was a standard called ESDA, Educational, Scientific, Documentary, or Artistic, which basically said that there's certain types of things that generally aren't allowed on YouTube, such as medical disinformation, certain types of like hate speech, etc., that presented in the context of education, documentary, artistic, right? If someone wanted to make a music video decrying racism as bad, and they had people saying racist things in the music video, right, that that wouldn't be taken down for hate speech, right? That's supposed to be the idea. So in my case, not really scientific or artistic per se, but I do believe my work is educational because I'm recording moments in history, and it's obviously documentary. Quite literally, it ends up being used in documentaries. So my view is that the ESDA exception applies to essentially everything that I cover. Everything I cover is for the sake of educating people about what's happening and creating documentary footage of it that's usable for documentaries. YouTube said that exception effectively no longer applies unless you actually add for certain subjects, you have to add what they call countervailing views. They have so far implemented this for two subjects, vaccines and elections. And so basically they say that the ESDA exception will only apply when you're talking about the election, specifically claims of election fraud, if there's a greater weight given to a voice in the video that says that there wasn't election fraud. And so this is obviously very challenging for someone who does primary source journalism, because when I filmed the president speak for 70 minutes, I believe that what I actually created is not a product that took a position on the election, right? I didn't take the position in the video that what Trump was saying was correct. I took the position that this is what he said. And in my mind, that's indisputable, right? I don't think that's even remotely possibly disinformative because it's showing exactly what happened. But they say, since you didn't dispute what the president said, that essentially the video itself isn't allowed. And so I ended up reposting that video as well as there was a total of six videos from that kind of period of December to January that they ended up taking down. I ended up having to basically repost those with introductions where I said, here are some other places you can go to to look at you know, information that will tell you that elections are safe. And so I basically sent my viewers to 
.gov websites that describe uh, how you know election officials keep elections safe. And I resent the fact that I have to do that, actually. <laughs> I think that it might be a different story if somebody was actually posting videos claiming that the election was stolen. But in my case, as a primary source journalist, I am posting video showing objectively what it was that was being said by the president. And I think that they're in a way putting words in my mouth by claiming that then I have to repudiate the words that are captured in the content. And I want to make it clear, by the way, that this has been taken into ridiculous extreme context. So I was actually suspended from YouTube for a week for a video that I took on Inauguration Day. So January 6th happens and DC is locked down. There's you know National Guardsmen everywhere. It's very difficult to enter or exit the city. And the result was there was actually very little activism during Joe Biden's inauguration. It was the third inauguration I'd covered activism pertaining to, right? There were protesters outside Obama's second inauguration. There was, of course, a lot of demonstrations outside Trump's inauguration. And then I was outside Biden's inauguration. And for the most part, what I was filming was pretty much soldiers standing around. But one thing that did happen was that there was a sort of anti-LGBT hate group that showed up. So if you're familiar with Westboro Baptist Church, who holds signs that say God hates, and I'm not going to repeat a certain expletive for gay people, it was very much in the style of that, signs that had things sort of slut-shaming or LGBT-shaming and so forth. And what was interesting to me is that people who were not sort of any kind of organized group, but just sort of organically formed, began yelling at them across the street. There were people who basically mocked them and said that you know what they were saying is stupid. And so I was filming all sides of this interaction, the hate group and the people who were countering the hate group. Altogether, I ended up with an eight-minute video uh, sort of showing what these guys were saying, and showing people responding to them. And one of the things that I actually thought was interesting and accordingly included in the video was there was one guy who was apparently offended because this group had yelled at a woman who had basically short shorts and like a bra on or something like that. She was a sort of street performer who was less than clothed, especially for a winter day, but you know, to each their own. And they basically were calling her a whore. They used the word whore referring to her. And there was a guy, he was trying to stand up for her. So he took his shirt off, actually, and continued to yell at them. And then he ended up saying, and I remember because I ended up with a transcript of this and arguing with YouTube about this, I kind of have it committed to memory. This isn't in front of me as I'm saying it. He said to them, correct your hate, correct your hate, correct your hate. I still believe he's yelling at them. I still believe the election was stolen, but you, sir, are preaching the wrong form of Christianity. Basically, he goes on to continue yelling at them. Out of the entire eight-minute video, this was the only moment that actually referenced in any way Trump or the situation with the election or anything like that. The video was taken down for election disinformation, and my YouTube account was suspended for a week. The logic was that there was election disinformation in it because he said, correct your hate, I still believe the election was stolen, but you are preaching the wrong form of Christianity. In my mind, this guy is the only guy with the position that he has in the entire situation. He's arguing with people, right? Literally, he's screaming at people who disagree with him. He's flanked by mostly ostensibly progressives, like people who support Biden, who certainly don't support Trump. And he's yelling at people who actually were saying that Trump is a philanderer and that all of the politicians are satanic and whatever. 
Um, so this guy is completely on his own taking the position that the election was stolen. And it was really a throwaway line, right? It wasn't elaborated on. It wasn't like he started pulling out some charts. It wasn't even the point of what he was saying. His entire sentence, it was a prepositional phrase at the beginning of a sentence. I still believe the election was stolen, but, or I guess it was a compound sentence, I should say, but <laughs> third grade grammar there. But in any event, it was an extremely minuscule part of the video, and they perceived it to be election disinformation because technically the words, I still believe the election was stolen, were used, and technically those words were violative. And when I argued back and forth with YouTube about this, like, why would one line not said by me, said in the context of a bunch of people disagreeing with him, not count as like, this is clearly like what the exceptions are built for. They said, well, you didn't repudiate that one line, right? So if a single person says something like that, you have to actually present an introduction or text over him that says he's wrong about this. And I think it's sort of forcing me to be something other than a primary source journalist. In the year following this, I have sort of preemptively when I've filmed events pertaining to like vaccines, where I'm filming people who this has become a considerable voice in this country and one that's important to document for history's sake, there are people out there who believe that the vaccines are bad for whatever reason, and they're holding protests against the vaccines and hearing what they are saying and that they are doing that, in my opinion, is important to record for history's sake and to understand the point of view of the roughly 20 or 30% of this country who are, you know, in the words of the CDC, vaccine hesitant. I think those recordings are important, but in order to not run afoul of YouTube's rules, I've basically had to put a warning at the beginning of all those videos that say, the CDC says vaccines are safe and effective. Here are some links to learn about vaccine access and whatever. As much as I'm not too worried about having to do that, it doesn't like so much hurt the work that I'm doing. I'm concerned about a trend that says that this is what journalists have to say in order to stay on air. And I think that it probably subverts that ability. And in some cases, it's just really hard. Like if someone in a live stream says something you're not expecting, and you then are in the position of having to stand next to that person, you know, and say, oh, actually, what he just said is wrong. I'm saying this so that YouTube doesn't take my video down. I think that that's a dangerous direction. And I think it can very easily be expanded into areas other than vaccines and elections. Yes. And it also jeopardizes your ability to be a objective witness or bystander when you're in these events. I mean, to go back to what you were saying about when you've been either covering Antifa or the Proud Boys, I imagine if you're live streaming something in the moment and someone says something that is potentially going to get flagged and then you in the moment have to announce that what they're saying is wrong or inappropriate, it's going to poison the well, so to speak, regarding your standing with whoever you're filming. And they might become agitated or aggressive towards you because they're now thinking, okay, well, this person isn't just objectively covering what I'm saying and doing. They're actually arguing against my points that I'm trying to make here in public. And I feel like that could potentially put not just your job at risk, but also your life in peril if you're in a situation in which you're having to live argue with someone just to keep your stream up, which could then turn them against you. I feel like there's the potential for that, don't you? The solution that I've come up for that when it comes to events that I foresee having this kind of um, problem with. So, for example, I live streamed an event that was basically celebrating the life of Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot in the Capitol. And my opinion, which was correct, was that there are probably going to be people at this who say things about 
the election that would be considered disagreeable by YouTube as a platform. You know, so I preempted that by I actually like essentially stepped into a different room to begin the live stream and said, here's an introduction. Here's what's going on. Because I anticipate that people will bring up the election, I want to say that YouTube considers CISA.gov slash rumor control to be a valuable source dissuading people from blah, blah, blah. Like I basically said those things out loud preemptively at the beginning of the stream. And then before shutting down the stream, I basically repeated them. I've done the same thing in Michigan, where Trump promoted to his own following by email. He said, huge Michigan rally for election integrity. So I went to that. I wanted to film it. When Trump's telling his audience to be there, there's going to be a lot of people at that thing. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people who were there. So I thought it was important to record. So similarly, like I started with an intro saying that stuff, but it can take you by surprise. Like in the case of what happened on Inauguration Day for me, like it was a guy yelling at a hate group who said the one half of one sentence that caused my video to be taken down and my channel to be suspended. So I'm thankful that, you know, since then, I think that YouTube, at least to me, clarified in my case, sort of what I would have to say in order to remain on the platform. But I resent that I should have to say anything. I actually didn't have a problem with YouTube's original solution to this problem, which was that when I was posting videos of the very early, right, I had documented, and I, I actually, I think that this will point to the value of this work in general. I documented the Stop the Steal movement beginning on November 5th. So just like do the math in your head for a second, right? Two days after the election, I filmed the very first event that was being branded as Stop the Steal outside the RNC. And of course, those things then caught a lot of momentum with 2 million MAGA marches attracting tens of thousands of people. There were a lot of individual ones in states, particularly Georgia and Arizona, where people were showing up armed at these events to describe that they thought the election was stolen. So it was building up towards something that now these are incredibly valuable videos showing the history that led up to January 6th, right? January 6th didn't just happen because it happened. It didn't just pop up out of nowhere. There were dozens of events that led up to it. As we speak today, I have a YouTube playlist where I actually have a sort of timeline of, as I see it, the events that led up to January 6th and following January 6th. And of course, whenever anyone reaches out to me to license for a documentary pertaining to the subject, I say, here's my playlist. You can find 86 videos pertaining to this. So that's sort of a business thing. But it shows it didn't happen in a vacuum. These things were important to record. What used to happen, actually, following the election on those videos, YouTube was actually putting basically a warning under them. It wasn't on top of the video. It wasn't censoring the video. But it basically just said the election has been certified by blah, blah, blah. And it would give you a little bit of information and it would have a learn more link that basically went to a government website that described the apparatus to protect election integrity in the United States. And I actually didn't have a problem with that, right? I don't really have an issue with, okay, it's my video, it's on someone else's platform. And if that platform feels that it's sort of ethically or societally more responsible to have a countervailing view available under it to give context or to give sort of some other place to look at these things, I didn't really have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is when they say, and therefore these recordings are unacceptable, and then they take them down altogether. Right. And their initial solve for that seems much more acceptable because it's the private platform. It's YouTube making that declaration rather than having to force you as the journalist who's trying to remain objective and just film the footage that you filmed without having to comment on it. Their new policy puts the onus on you, which to me seems like a step too far. This whole thing seems like a terribly unsolvable problem because if these companies are offloading moral judgment and decision-making to algorithms, 
And when humans have to retroactively rectify errors that are made by machine learning systems that can't differentiate between footage that is objectively covering an event like the footage you shoot and footage of someone endorsing an event or endorsing a particular view, I'm not sure how to solve this. The first thing that came to my mind was like, oh, maybe there could be like some sort of Twitter-esque blue badge that journalists could have on their Facebook or YouTube profiles that would exempt them. But then where does that leave kind of instantaneous citizen journalists who don't have a formal background in it, but are just filming something live because they happen to be there and their footage is very valuable? What keeps that from just getting taken down automatically because the algorithm hears or sees something that triggers something that then takes that footage down? This just feels like an awful precedent that is being set and kind of permanently instituted. And I'm not sure how to get around it because there's no way that individuals could watch every single video that's uploaded to YouTube because it's hundreds of thousands of videos uploaded every single day. Is there a way forward in your view that will respect the integrity of objective journalism while also disallowing people who are actively promoting certain things? I think that there's a lot of factors that sort of end up directly conflicting with each other, which is why I think that it's challenging. And it's also why I very specifically advocate for certain things as it relates to press freedom and and sort of censorship of media. And I'm a little bit less, I think, clear or advocative on certain other types of cases. It's pretty hard for me to imagine exactly how to draft, how to deal with some of these other kinds of issues. And then I'm and then I very narrowly kind of know what I think about it as it relates to journalism. But part of the problem actually already is that, like you just said, I don't want there to be like a multi-tiered system where certain people are kind of whitelisted because they're mainstream media reputable and other people are not. There have been a number of things that the mainstream media has gotten wrong. And I don't want to endow them with sort of this like blanket check mark that says like everything that they say is correct and indisputable, right? You're not allowed to argue with their position on this. And I think that that line is constantly moving. So I, an example that I would give is Facebook had a policy, I think YouTube might have as well, but I believe this was specific to Facebook, that claiming that the coronavirus came from any essentially human created source, such as a lab leak, yes. would be verboten, that you're not allowed to essentially claim that as a possibility, that it is scientifically provable that basically the coronavirus must have been formed in nature naturally, and that we're just sort of dealing with it as humanity, but that it didn't come from a result of a human issue. That is now actually very much in contention. There was a 60 minute story that made a very convincing case that we really don't know, and that China had been largely non-transparent in the days and weeks following the beginning of coronavirus, where basically China was in denial that their Wuhan lab had caused the coronavirus, but that they weren't letting anybody in. And the conclusion of the experts in that piece was basically that there's a lot of evidence for it. There's probably some evidence that would sort of mitigate that, that it's also still possible that it's not. And so we don't know for sure, and we very well might never know for sure. But the initial position of Facebook was that if you said, I think that it was a lab leak, you'd be banned from the platform. And now we're in a place where it's like, we may never know for sure, but that very well might have been accurate, <laughs> right? So of course, there are going to be situations that are way more straightforward, right? Certain things are true and certain things are just not true. But I think that the better process than letting a corporation make that decision has to be the original purpose of democracy, right? People using their free speech to prove each other wrong and so forth. And I think that if the platforms want to append fact checks onto things, then I think that that's probably the way forward. I think that could probably also be applied to many of the other things that they're trying to alleviate 
on social media, but I'm not as firm in my judgment about that, right? I don't really have a solution to what exactly counts as hate speech and when exactly should it be taken down? And is there some kind of quote unquote middle ground hate speech where the best thing is actually to have de-radicalizing information on it? Like, I don't know. I don't think that I have a hard concept of exactly what the best solution to that would be. For a lot of people, their ideas just remove everything. But as we've discussed, these social media platforms are inherently flawed and may well remove journalism that is about those things, right? You might be actually preventing, you know, people proclaiming hate speech from being held accountable. So, you know, there's give and take on like every element of this issue that you could find. Yeah, I totally agree. I talked about that exact problem of the Wuhan lab leak theory and the preemptive Facebook censorship of it on episode 31 with Dr. Alina Chan. And it's incredibly, to use kind of an overused word here, problematic when private organizations that are acting as kind of the town square are making preemptive decisions about what is and isn't true, especially when something is as hotly contested as that. But I know we've talked a lot today about your coverage of extreme and, and even violent moments in American political life over the last few years. But you've also documented so much more than that, as you've mentioned throughout our talk. As recently as December 13th, you were on the ground covering the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C. So my question to you, Ford, is how have you come to better understand our American politics across the spectrum as you've heard activists share their views at length and in person in ways that the average American doesn't really get the chance to do? The main thing that the mainstream media misses that I think that the American public is sort of deprived of that I've then gotten to see and I try to expose my audience to is that politics are really, really not binary. There's a tendency to frame, I think, in the mainstream media, things as just sort of a simple left versus right. And there are some occasions where they say, you know, oh, this person's really left, or this person's really right, or this person's really insufficiently left or really insufficiently right. And so you have people like Joe Manchin on one end or Bernie Sanders on the other end that they kind of describe as at odds with the Democratic Party in one way or another. And there can be a little bit of, again, to use an overused word, nuance in the mainstream media. But for the most part, it's like very binary. Right. And so you don't see a whole lot of progressive activists getting arrested protesting the policies of Joe Biden. Right. You don't get to see that on the media, but it happens. You know, during Trump, there was like a lot of coverage of activism that was really framed as against Trump when sometimes it was really only tangentially connected. Right. Like the racial justice movement that really, you know, accelerated in the summer of 2020. Most people who were parts of those groups were not particularly faithful in the election system overall, right? Many Black Lives Matter activists regarded Joe Biden as having a white supremacist background, that the crime bill had had a major effect on many of the issues that they had talked about. Joe Biden, while running against Trump, came down on the exact opposite side as racial justice activists when it came to fundamental issues of policing. Joe Biden actually was basically accusing Trump of, oh, Trump's the one who really wants to defund the police, right? Right. <laughs> And so an example of something that I thought was very historical that I filmed that I don't think most people are aware of, when Mariel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., painted or had painted Black Lives Matter onto the street outside the White House on H Street, it became known as Black Lives Matter Plaza, and that was done by the state. And that kind of became a symbol of like the White House, you know, here that has Trump in it, and then right there next to it, Black Lives Matter Plaza. What I think that a lot of people didn't even know is that the Black Lives Matter activists in D.C. sort of took over the area 
And for many months, that area, Black Lives Matter Plaza, you couldn't drive in it. It was basically a nonstop sort of social justice community that was there. But they actually painted as big as the original words. They painted the words equals defund MPD, referring to the D.C. Police Department. And that was the Black Lives Matter, you know, actual movement in D.C. They were saying that means defund the police. And so they were kind of taking a stab at Muriel Bowser, who is a Democrat, who's the mayor, who, while she is painting the words Black Lives Matter, the actual Black Lives Matter activists feel that she's not doing what they actually want. While Joe Biden, you know, is sort of saying that he supports BLM, Joe Biden was supporting funding the police more and was accusing Trump of defunding the police by contrast, that Joe Biden was so pro-cop that Trump was anti-cop was Joe Biden's take on the situation. So I think that that kind of demonstration, the demonstrations where the left or where social justice activists are critical of the supposedly sort of progressive leaders are often like kind of not used. Um, So this year I filmed a lot of that kind of thing. Like you just said, the Poor People's Campaign was holding a demonstration, which was largely focused on criticizing Joe Manchin from his left. But earlier this year, there was a one week event that had a total of 700 arrested over the environment that was saying Joe Biden is not standing up for the environment the way he said he is. He's been approving pipelines in particular was the main thing. Over a week of protests, uh, hundreds of arrested directly trying to call on Joe Biden to cancel things that he was approving. Mainstream media barely touched it. If 700 Trump supporters had gotten arrested around the Capitol doing even the exact same things, civil disobedience, light graffiti, basically blocking streets, there would have been wall-to-wall coverage, right? Hundreds of Trump supporters arrested protesting Joe Biden. But because it was progressives protesting Biden, the media doesn't know what to do with it. There's not a binary. And so I think the thing that I've gotten to see and gotten to learn is that political activists, people who care enough about issues to go out on the street and you know sometimes get into physical confrontations or sometimes get arrested for these issues, they care very deeply about them and they're willing to hold the people who are supposedly on their side accountable. And I think the mainstream media just completely ignores that sort of thing. I completely agree. Yeah, I, I cannot say that emphatically enough. I completely agree with you. So to take us to the final question that I ask every guest, As individuals, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every person, every group of people, all the time. It's just impossible. So, Ford, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I've struggled with the fact that the media hasn't reported on this person as kind of a colleague of theirs would be Julian Assange. And the reason that I bring him up is that Julian Assange, who ran WikiLeaks, is currently, as we record this, in Belmarsh Prison in UK, specifically so that he can be extradited to the United States to face Espionage Act charges related to the 2010 wiki leaking of the documents supplied by Chelsea Manning pertaining to the military. The reason that I sort of bring him up in the context of this long conversation that we had about journalism is that people have been having a debate sort of defining him out of journalism. It was actually the Obama administration that even as they prosecuted Chelsea Manning and even as they actually sought the death penalty against her originally, although Obama in his final days sort of sent a message the opposite direction by commuting her sentence, the Obama administration determined that the prosecution of Julian Assange for sort of receiving and publishing the documents 
that Chelsea Manning did not have the legal right to leak, that if they prosecuted him for that, they would effectively be jeopardizing press rights because it is not considered illegal to take documents even that were illegally distributed in the first place, taken away from where they came from, right? Classified documents, someone leaked them, you know, the media publishes them, that they felt that if they prosecuted Assange for that, that it would jeopardize press freedom. And indeed, it is a very normal element of journalism to publish things or publish about things that were leaked in the first place. I could even apply this in my own day-to-day life. Earlier this year, there were hackers who broke into the DC police department's infrastructure or something. And basically they threatened DC's police by saying that if they didn't receive some amount of Bitcoin or something, they were going to start releasing documents. And so they released these leaked documents uh, to the public. And I actually found my name in two of them. There were two documents where between January 6th and January 20th, so this is the time period right leading up to the inauguration, there were two documents that cited my work. These were um, confidential policing documents where they were basically saying, assessing the threat for January 20th. And they basically quoted that I had been in, I was in Ohio and then Virginia on the 17th and 18th. And I had filmed the Boogaloo movement, right? Armed libertarian activists who uh, had gained a lot of attention because of January 6th. Even though they weren't at January 6th, they were holding rallies at state capitals only nine days later. And it sort of freaked out the media a little bit, right? That maybe the storming of the Capitol could happen again, that kind of thing. And so when I was at those events, I asked them sort of about the inauguration. And basically all of them were like, no, we don't care about that. And so that, you know, my name, my journalism ended up in a confidential document that ended up being leaked. And of course, whoever did that leaking, whoever hacked, you know, the MPD was committing a crime, inarguably. But once they put it out there to the public, once it was just on the internet, me taking those documents and posting them on Twitter and saying, hey, look, the MPD, (laughs) you know, had something to say about my coverage. That wasn't a criminal act. Inarguably, that's supposed to be something that's protected. And Under the precedent that would be set if Julian Assange is extradited to the United States, a country that he's never been a party, he's never been a citizen here, right? These are laws that they're trying to apply toward a publisher who was in another country. If he gets extradited to the United States uh, and then is indeed convicted of those crimes, it would set a precedent that would jeopardize completely normal activity of journalists. So I would say that something that's alarmed me is that a lot of the media seems to be hesitant to describe him sort of in the terms that I just described. I've been pleasantly surprised when I've seen guys like Tucker Carlson and like Rachel Maddow actually describe that kind of precedent. But when I've looked at uh, things like the Committee to Protect Journalists, when they do their annual list of detained journalists, like they don't include Julian Assange in that. And so I would just say I'd uh, remember who he is, but specifically why he is being charged, right? People can believe that he's a bad guy for one reason or another. And I wouldn't even consider it really my place to, um, you know, argue for or against him as a person or his actions. But in terms of the legality of his actions, the reason that he is being prosecuted has huge implications for press freedom. Well said, and I completely agree. And as we've discussed at length today, documenting reality as it happens is so vitally important. Because as you've said, our mainstream media often presents a complex picture as a reductive and binary system. So thank you, Ford. I believe that you're providing a real service to our democracy, and I appreciate it, and I appreciate your time today. So thank you. Thank you for having me.